You know, one of my favorite smells um, in the whole world is the, the, when you walk into a house and there's a loaf of homemade bread cooking, baking in the oven. I mean, isn't that a wonderful smell? It kind of fills the house and it makes you, you have good feelings. You kind of feel warm inside. You anticipate eating that hot bread with, with butter melting over it. There's no better smell or not many better smells than freshly baked bread. On well, the passage that just, Hillary just read, Jesus uses this idea of bread, and he uses a metaphor to describe and define himself. He says, I am the bread of life. And you think, well, that's good. It's a nice description. I mean, it, it, it kind of ties into the feelings we have about bread. There's warmth and there's it's comfort food for some of us. And, and it's, it's kind of a, a nice thing, the idea of people coming together and breaking bread over a meal. And he says, I am the bread of life. But it's not, it's not terribly grandiose, right? Some of the other things that Jesus said about himself tend to be a little bit more grandiose and, and outrageous and, and controversial. Like, before Abraham was, I am. He said that. And the hearers heard that instantly. And they knew that he was saying that he was eternal, that he was very God himself. He said things like, I am the light of the world in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Pretty big claim, bold claim. He said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Those are pretty audacious statements for a, a poor carpenter from a backwater region of Galilee. Some of the other statements, by comparison, seem a little bit more ordinary. Like, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the good shepherd. Interesting claims, but hardly the kind that are going to stop you in your tracks. It's not until you poke around at them for a while that the depth and breadth of their meeting of what Jesus is saying about himself what it means for us becomes evident. And so it is with today's claim. I am the bread of life. Now, if Jesus was going to use food as a metaphor to define or describe himself, he picked a pretty ordinary one, bread. I mean, you can get bread pretty much anytime you want, right? It's, it's usually pretty cheap. You can, it's usually at most meals. Unless you have some food allergies, then you know, it's understandable you might not. But bread's pretty ordinary. Why didn't he use something a little bit more inspiring, a little more special, a little less ordinary? Like, I am the filet mignon of life. You know, something like that, maybe. Or, or I'm the creme brulee of life. Caviar of life. But instead he says, I am, I am the bread of life. Now, you think that would be a pretty benign statement, but that statement ends up getting himself into some hot water towards the end of chapter 6. Why would that be the case? Well, let's take a look at it, and we're going to piece this out today before we come to the table ourselves in a few minutes and partake of the bread in the cup. And it's going to make a little bit more sense to us. Now, earlier in chapter 6, before the passage that Hillary just read, uh, something happens that helps us provide context. Uh, a little bit earlier, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Remember the story? Um, Jesus is teaching out in the countryside. A large group of people says 5,000 people show up to hear him teach. They're drawn to his teachings. They're compelled by his personality. There's something about him that they, they need to be around him. And it's the end of the day and people are hungry. There's, and they have nothing to feed them. And the disciples bring this problem to his attention. And they bring him a few loaves and fishes. Jesus multiplies them. And 5,000 people are fed. They're satisfied. And there's leftovers. Pretty impressive miracle. 
But not only did Jesus satisfy the hunger of, of hunger of thousands of people, there's also some there are also some strong messianic implications that are going on here as well. You see, in several places in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about the Messiah who was going to come someday, the chosen one, and that he would bring he would satisfy people's hunger, that he would bring food for the poor and the people. And when Jesus does this miracle, the, the crowd picks up on it. They connect the dots. And we can see that's the case because in verse 14, they say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, we think he's the guy. We think that he is the Messiah, in fact. And and we can see this connection because there's a movement to make him king on the spot. Jesus senses this. He escapes through the crowd. And he goes up in the hills to pray. He sends the disciples off by themselves. He tells them to take a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And later that night, the boat is stuck in a headwind on the lake. And Jesus walks across the water to them. The sun comes up the next morning. The crowd is looking for Jesus. They want to see him do more miracles. And they discover that he's on the other side of the lake, too. And so when they catch up to him and the disciples, they ask him, hey, we saw you in a sense. We saw you send the disciples ahead. We saw you go on the hills. You weren't in a boat. You had no boat. How did you get to the other side of the lake? That's where it starts. Rabbi, when did you get there? How did you get there, in other words? Now, Jesus ignores their question, and he gets right to the point. And he essentially says, you're here today because I fed you yesterday. You got a free lunch, and you want more. Jesus knew that they were looking for more. They were looking for material blessings. They wanted financial prosperity. They wanted freedom from Rome. They wanted food for their families. They wanted a better life for themselves. All good things. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus, in this passage, drives home the point that he didn't come to provide loaves and fish. He came to provide eternal life. To give them something that after they partook in it, they would not have hunger anymore. And to this point, the the people in the crowd, they seem to be interested. They seem to be following Jesus' teaching. And they say, what do we have to do to get this eternal life? Which is the question everybody should ask, especially if you believe in the afterlife, is what do we have to do to get into heaven, right? What do you want from me, God? People want to know the answer to that question. What rules do I have to keep? What religious activities do I have to observe? How much do I need to give to charity? Tell me, what do I need to do to get this eternal life? You know, typically, if you ask the average person, they'll come up with some sort of list. They'll list their credentials, right? I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good neighbor, a hard worker. I, I give to charity. I, I, you know, I keep most of the commandments. I go to church you know, quite a bit. Maybe you should go more, but I go most of the time. I've been baptized or whatever. That's what people want is a list. Tell me what I need to do. Give me a checklist so I know know I'm good with God. And that's what they ask here. What must we do to do the work that God requires? Fair question. But Jesus doesn't give them a list. Instead, he says, the work of God is this. Believe in the one he has sent. He's saying you can't do anything. All you can do is believe. You can't work for eternal life. You can't purchase it. You 
can only receive it. Jesus says it's about a relationship with me. It's about trusting in me in me alone. Again, the crowd is tracking with Jesus. They understand that he's actually talking about himself. They have to believe in him to receive this life. But they want to make sure before they commit, right? They want to make sure before they sign on the dotted line. So they ask him to do another miracle. Give them another sign. Do that thing with the bread again. And then we'll believe. You see in the conversation, it talks about Moses, the man of heaven. What they were talking about was back in the Old Testament. Remember the story? The people of Israel are wandering in the desert. And they run out of food. There's no food in sight. And God provides. They wake up in the morning, there's manna from heaven. A bread-like substance. Every day for quite a while, manna from heaven, there's bread. And so they, they're, they're hearkening back to that. Because there was a strong tradition amongst the, amongst the rabbis and the people of Israel that when the Messiah would come, the true Messiah that he would again call forth manna from heaven. It was sort of an authenticating sign. It would prove that he was the real deal. So they ask, do that. You fed the 5,000 yesterday, do the manna thing, and we'll believe, we'll commit. We're all in at that point. But Jesus doesn't cooperate. Instead, he offers them two corrections. He says, first, it wasn't Moses who gave you manna. It was God. Secondly, he says, I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm talking about true bread from heaven, eternal life. You eat from this bread, you'll never be hungry again. And they say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. So again, they're tracking with him. They're asking the right questions. And then Jesus says this outrageous claim, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And at this point, things begin to unravel. They've been tracking, been connecting the dots, but now... It begins to unravel. They begin to push back. Verse 41. At this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I came down from heaven? So all of a sudden, I am the bread of life is no longer very benign, is it? So why did Jesus choose this image of bread? Well, because in their day and age, bread was the most important staple of food. And Jesus is saying, in essence, I am essential to life. I am the most important thing in life. You will not live without me. There's an article in the Boston Globe a few years ago written by a woman named Susan um, Seligson, and she traveled the world sampling the bread of many nations. She wrote a book entitled Going with the Grain. Kind of clever there. A wandering bread lover takes a bite out of life. And she wrote a piece for the op-ed page in the Boston Globe protesting against the uh, Atkins-inspired low-carb diet. She, was, she points out that bread has an 8,000-year track record for sustaining life. She points to the ubiquity of breadstuffs in every culture, Bagels, biscuits, baguettes, tortillas, pita, matzah, lavash, and for our covenant background, Swedish rye bread. She informs us that Muslims and Hindus consider it blasphemous to cut bread with a knife. She reminds how often people come together to break bread. And she points out that in Arabic, the word for bread is also the bread for life. She writes, when you demonize bread, you you demean life itself. I would not want to live in a world without bread. 
Now, we might think she's a little bit over the top there. But the point she's making is that bread is basic to life. It's foundational. It nourishes. It comforts. It draws people together. It delights the senses. We can live without steak. It pains me to say that. We can live without ice cream, but we cannot live without bread, she suggests. And Jesus here says, I am the bread of life. I am essential. You cannot live without me. And notice he didn't say, I give you true bread from heaven. He says, I am the true bread from heaven. Verse 47. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is bread that comes down from heaven, which a person may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a person eats of this bread, he or she will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You don't need manna. You need me, he says. You don't need Moses. You don't need some religious leader. You need me. You don't need religious checklists. You need me. And this is where the crowd in Jesus part ways. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That was more than the crowd could take. Jesus was telling them, apart from me, you're dead. You're lost. With me, alive. Without me, lost. And that was more than the crowd could take. And by the time we get to verse 66, we read, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And once again, we find there's no middle ground with Jesus. You you stone him or you serve him. You follow him or you turn away. You receive him or you reject him. The people in the crowd that day were impressed by Jesus' miracles. They admired his teachings. They were drawn to his heart. But they were not prepared to admit that they needed him more than anything else in life. They'd rather eat manna. And many people today stumble over the same things, right? We'd rather do it ourselves and take our chances than to admit that Jesus was anything more than a great teacher. And that we need a relationship with him and him alone to live. St. Paul's Cathedral in London is sometimes referred to as a world sanctuary. For hundreds of years, people have worshipped at that site. People gather from all over the globe to go there in search of peace and wisdom and perhaps of God. Uh, Pastor Brian Wilkerson wrote about his experience at St. Paul's with his wife, Karen. They had the opportunity to go there and worship one Sunday morning, and they joined a few others, a hundred others, for a worship service, communion service. And he he writes that there were people from all over the world and every station of life. So the service was beautiful. It was biblical. It was reverent. The homily was based on John chapter three with an invitation to faith in Christ. And then he writes, when it came time for communion, worshipers were invited to come forward and receive the elements. It was a remarkable thing to see this disparate collection of seekers and believers from all over the world making their way single file down the center aisle to receive a wafer of bread. And receive it was what you had to do. Each worshiper held out their hands as one of the pastors placed the wafer in their hands or on their tongue. He writes, I was struck with how passive the worshiper had to be to partake of the bread. There was no taking it, only receiving it. 
He writes, my wife Karen was struck by how vulnerable an act it was to go forward publicly to admit your need. I'm sure there were some who didn't fully understand what they needed or why they were there or how it worked, but they knew they needed something they did not have in and of themselves. Something they couldn't provide for themselves, couldn't obtain in any other way, but to come forward and receive it. That's how it is with the bread of life. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't work for it. All we can do is to believe in the one that God the Father has sent. All we can do is admit that we need him. That he is essential. That he's the only way. That we cannot live in a world without Jesus. You know, in a few moments we're going to come forward for communion. Do it a little bit differently today. We'll give you instructions in a little bit, but... We'll have an opportunity to to do that, to come forward and admit our need, to confess our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the bread of life. And by coming forward, we're saying that we cannot and will not live without him in this life or in the next. Because you see, in the end, only one thing is needed, is essential for life in this world and in the life to come. Jesus Christ. And when we have him, we have everything that we need. And this table reminds us that, that the bread of life comes at a great cost. But thanks be to God, God the Father has paid for it. Jesus Christ has paid for it by giving up his body in death. The bread of life was broken on a cross. His life was poured out so that it might be poured into ours so that we could live forever with him. And so I invite you to come this morning in humility and gratitude in the recognition that Jesus Christ is life itself. And so come in just a minute. Eat the bread and drink the cup. Jesus Christ is waiting for you today, wanting to fill you, wanting to meet your deepest need, the need for him. So come.